0: Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to the Aurora Energy Research Podcast. What you're about to hear is part of a collection entitled Aurora on COVID-19 implications. In this episode, John Feddersen, Aurora's co-founder and chief executive is talking to Chris Stark, CEO of the Committee
1: on Climate Change. Welcome to the sixth installment of Aurora's podcast series titled Aurora on COVID-19. I'm John Federson, co-founder and CEO of Aurora, and this series comprises one-on-one interviews with industry leaders on the impact of COVID-19 for the energy sector. Uh, recent episodes, which you can catch up with on our official podcast channel, have covered the impact of COVID-19 on the energy industry from a wide variety of perspectives, infrastructure investors, uh, project finance banks... Uh, lawyers as as well to get different perspectives on how this is shaping our industry and today i'm really delighted to be joined by chris stark who's the ceo of the committee on climate change with uh, what i imagine will be uh, a a perspective on climate a perspective on policy uh welcome chris thanks john great uh, chris doesn't really need any introduction but but uh just in case uh, he's obviously the, the chief executive of the Committee on Climate Change. Before the Committee on Climate Change, he had a career uh, predominantly as a civil servant uh, in Scottish Government, uh, in Treasury, and in uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs Department. Uh, and in my own experience with 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 Chris uh, and having known him for a couple of years, I think he's uh, both highly articulate and very knowledgeable on the subject matter. And I think in terms of the style, he's brought to this job he's probably been more challenging of government I would say I I think probably less challenging on the targets and and frankly the targets have increased quite a lot over the last couple of years but I think more challenging on the action taken to hit those targets Uh, and I think in terms of style he's probably someone who's aspired to speak a bit more to the hearts and minds of voters a sort of you know the spread. The spreadsheet alone will not persuade people. Seems to have characterised your style. Although of course <laughs> I haven't. I, I haven't. I haven't looked at everything you've produced. But that's the sense I get. And, and these climate assemblies recently seem seem to be one example of that. So I, I won't ask you. If, you think that's fair? Okay, I was, was going to say I'm not going to ask <laughs> you if that's a fair assessment. But I'm I'm pleased that it is. So Chris, just to start things off, uh, and for people who don't know, um, could you just explain what the role of the committee on climate change is?
2: Yeah, of course. So, I mean, we're, we're quite, an, uh, quite a unique um, institution um, and you don't find many bodies like the CCC uh, when you look around the world. So we were created by the legislation that we have in the UK that governs uh, climate change. And uh, that legislation is the Climate Change Act. Uh, it was passed in 2008. So we've been around since then. And the kind of neat thing about that legislation is that it gives a responsibility to government to do something about uh, reducing emissions, um, and it creates a long-term target uh, to do that. And the clever bit was that uh, there was a great deal of foresight when that legislation was passed that uh, these long-term goals often are uh, not things that are that are followed by governments in the short term. So there's an institution that was created, the, the Committee on Climate Change, to oversee progress, I suppose, and to offer advice um, on how to get on track to those long-term goals. And the really novel bit about our role is that we are um, an analytical organisation principally, uh, not, but not a regulator. Um, and once in a while we offer uh, our advice on what the next set of targets should be in the UK. So in the UK, these are the kind of interim targets that are set every five years called the carbon budgets. So it's quite a unique role, really. We're we're, we're kind of advisor, independent advisor, not in government, Um, and we also have this role in in setting the targets themselves. So we are advisors to government for most of the year, and then then for for one day of the year, we're, we're more like the watchdog for parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a it's a great role. It's a great great role to have.
1: Great. So so I take it you're enjoying the role then.
2: Oh, I love it. I mean, who okay. who wouldn't? It's the best job you can have. So um, okay, I'm passionate about the issues, and especially in these kind of moments of you know big changes happening around us, uh, it's just a fascinating job to have.
1: Uh, so yeah, I love it. So so what? Just to start broadly on this COVID nineteen topic, what surprised you the most over the last say three months? What didn't you expect?
2: Well, I didn't expect any of it. So, I mean, I think the <laughs> no, but, the, yeah, uh, the common <laughs> idea itself. Yeah. I was sort of thinking about this the other day. I mean, I was thinking back to uh, what I was listening to and, and reading and, and watching over the Christmas break, and um, I remember of. I remember. I remember noting at least that it was happening in China. I, I'd uh, not long before that, I'd been in in Beijing, um, and uh, you know, it was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but the thing I have been most surprised with um, is just the the pace of change, the speed with which we moved from uh, noting a thing happening somewhere else to you know kind of full scale response here in in this country has just been staggering. And I, I mean, I mean, the most obvious example of how quickly things move was that you know the, the, the chancellor's first budget speech, you remember, you remember, was 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 days before we moved into uh, the full lockdown. And just the pace of that, the way that that's swept aside every other priority for government, every other priority we have in society, has just been astonishing. Mm. So there's massive impacts on the issues that we cover in, yeah. in, the, in the Committee on Climate Change, uh, which we're only really scratching the surface on now. So trying to get your head around that, we've had to do that at the same sort of pace. So what's been most surprising is the way that we've moved swiftly to
1: this new way of life
2: at such staggering pace. It's incredible, really.
1: Yeah, interesting, and I and it would it, what I'd like to do a little bit later on is see if there are any parallels you see for the rate of rate of response to COVID as opposed to yeah. to climate change. But before we get there, and so one thing that has changed very quickly is emissions are down a lot, right? So so the air is you know carbon emissions are substantially lower. This is going to be a a really low year globally, and you know air quality and particulates and those sorts of things are down. Do you see do you see that and does that make you pleased from the perspective of your job that we're going to have a great year on, on carbon emissions? Do you think it's a positive or, 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 or is it just a blip and irrelevant?
2: Uh, not pleased at all, really. I mean, I, I think the, <clears throat> uh, the, the fascinating thing is this is going to be a, a, a remarkable year for emissions, no doubt. I mean, I don't know how much emissions will fall this year, but I, I suspect it will be 10% and maybe even more
1: globally i um, think or in the UK? globally the yeah
2: i mean just the size of the lockdown and shutdowns we've seen in 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 economies right around the world tells me it's going to be a big a big number um so i mean that in one sense that's great but the 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 interesting thing from my perspective is it does almost nothing for climate change so we have we have continued to pour carbon dioxide into the atmosphere even this year um and what we have with climate change is a, a chronic cumulative problem so you, you know you're you are even even in a year as unprecedented as this we will continue to, to grow the size of that problem and yeah. the problem is i suppose from my perspective is that it, it, it i suspect it will make it harder for us to get focused on the on the long run you know the the, the systemic the sort of false sense of, of security emissions. type thing yeah and I, it's, I, I the interesting bit from my perspective is is the question of whether any anything has changed permanently when it comes to the trajectory of emissions. I suspect some of it has but but um but but no, I don't really take much heart from the short term change in emissions. if anything, it reveals the scale of the crisis actually i mean the kind of fall in emissions that we might see this year, let's say five to ten percent is the kind of fall in emissions you'd need to see every year for the next decade to be genuinely on track for the one and a half degree temperature yeah. threshold that you see in the Paris Agreement. So it's, it's it's a measure of how big the challenge is overall, actually, that, you know, even in a moment like this, that just about kind of fits the, uh, the annual target. Yeah, do you think so, it yeah, could daunt a-
1: people then? I mean, do you think it could be daunting to say this is what... This is, in a sense, you know, some of the challenges being, look, we're going to have to move back to the Stone Age uh, if we're going to decarbonise the economy. So, sort of, you know, a common sort of phrase. Do you think this might make people say, hang on, if, if this is what what you know, combating climate change looks like, then I'm not sure I'm that keen.
2: Well, of course, I mean, I think that is the big worry. And I think that, 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 that one of the biggest challenges for anyone who, who works in this area is, is, is to not make the, even implicitly the link that somehow what we're doing at the moment is, is the prescription for tackling climate change. I mean, it's, it's a dreadful way of doing it if it is. So locking down economies, ceasing economic activity yeah. uh, is, is a quick way to cut emissions, but it's, it's not in any way something that will have legs. So, you know, we're going to have to, I'm much more interested in the, uh in the in the the progress that we can make on a long-term basis the shifts that we will take that will remain permanent that will that will actually that will change properly the trajectory of emissions not 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 kind of a short-term blip so and that's i think that's that's going to have to be a different a change in emphasis and a a change in the narrative as we come out of this or we won't have success i suspect in getting to the goal
1: Mm. on the on on that you sort of vaguely touched on the positive side there of Possibly this changes people's preferences. You know, people go to the park and say, "Hang on, the the air's a lot clearer today than it's ever than it's ever been." Do you see? And I I credit you with introducing the Overton window into my into my <laughs> terminologies. I like think you mentioned it at an Aurora conference a couple of years ago, and I've been using it ever since. Is there a chance that that the you know, what people people value. It's it's deeper than the Overton window, actually. It's sort of what people value and their preferences will change as a a consequence. Do you see any evidence of that?
2: So I'm much more taken with that notion. I think we've had, in extreme circumstances, um, we have had a glimpse of what the world would be like in a world where we weren't uh, burning lots of fossil fuels in cities and towns, for example. That's probably the most obvious area. I think we have come to appreciate local amenities and green spaces more in this lockdown than ever before and green spaces incidentally have been shrinking in recent years so that's something I, you know, I, you can see immediately that changes in transport changes in our appreciation of of green spaces i think are, are definitely something to come out of this and crucially crucially changes in air quality so we've had a we've had a glimpse of what a kind of net zero world might look like and feel like in some very extreme circumstances this isn't the way to get to that world because it involves, uh, you know, a very rapid transition, and if I might say, a very disorderly kind of transition. What the key is to, to bring about that kind of world through an orderly transition, with the right yeah. policies and, and economic response. And and you know, they, I I think if there is anything positive to take from it, it's that that you know, this is this is what you win at the end of it. You know, you get clear skies, you get actually quite a pleasant way of life at the end of that. Yeah. So, I, I, so I I I'm very cautious not to not to try and link the lockdown with with, the, with climate action, because it's just not the way to do it. But, yeah, but you yeah. know, you could definitely see in, in cities like London the impact it has. Um, so, And I do think that has changed things, particularly for transport emissions. I, I don't think we will return to, uh, you know, the kind of transport system that we were planning pre-COVID after okay. this.
1: Interesting. And the Prime Minister a couple of days ago was encouraging everyone to cycle or walk to work. So habits may well be forming... As, as we speak right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the fascinating thing is the psychology of this, right? So we, we um, uh, people in my field talk a lot about behavior change and it's a terrible term. Uh, I think it implies poor behavior, so it's not a term I use very much. But the question of what behaviors might change after this in society is the fundamental question, it seems to me at the moment. And there isn't much evidence about what happens in a lockdown like this, but there is evidence from psychology and interestingly, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna usually misrepresent psychology here. I'm sure some of your <laughs> listeners will, will be shaking their head at this moment. <clears throat> but you know the, what psychology tells you is when you face a big moment of change like a lockdown, what psychology does typically uh, is that it, we, we tend to think about the negative connotations of that. So we worry a lot about the fact we can't go to the pub. I'm still worrying about that now. You know, we, you won't see, you know, we won't see our, our colleagues in the office. You know, these are. These big changes, we, we look for the negatives, and that's the thing that we typically cling on to in that moment. What interestingly happens is the longer this goes on, the more this becomes the norm of sorts, the more we will value the negative changes when we go back. So, so that might mean, for example, we think negatively about returning to that commute that we did every day uh, and think more fondly of the fact that we could you know, work from our bedrooms. So you know, that, that probably means that a rule of thumb might be the longer this goes on, the more you can expect some of this change that we've seen very rapidly enforced upon us to stick. So, remote working, for example, becomes just a normal thing. It becomes less embarrassing, frankly, to set up a Zoom call. Uh, you know that that sort of stuff will make an appreciable difference and will will have a long-term impact. I think it's still at the margins, though. So the steps to get to net zero uh, today are still the steps to get to net zero. Uh, three months ago, so there's some security in in knowing that, and and the question for people in my trade is to work out what how those shifts in behaviour might stick and what that does for the short, medium, and long term.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating conversation that psychology point. I mean, I see as many behavioural biases, if you want to call them that, that that go against it as well. My my favourite oh, yeah. is is. Um, humans are not very good at one in 20 year events or one in 50 year events it either happens every year or it never happens and um, you see that in you see that in catastrophic risk insurance markets you know people insure the year after the flood and um, then 2 years later 3 years later we're back to normal levels of insurance so so i i i fear that in 3 years time we'll all be back into the the perspective that pandemics never happen right? rather
2: than they, so they I, may I happen think tomorrow I th- I think you're right about that. And I think, and interestingly, our job is to speak to government rather than to people. So I think that is indeed the tendency of people, but governments, it seems to be should act differently. So if there's anything that's been, that we've learned in, this, in the midst of this coronavirus crisis is that we weren't as well planned as we thought or as resilient as we yeah. thought to a shock. And climate change, my God, climate change is going to bring more of these things. So I mean, yeah. I, I, you, I mean, we've 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 already actually in the CCC changed subtly our our, our message um, to to one of resilience. The need yeah. to rebuild the economy to be more resilient in the future, which is partly about the goal of net zero emissions, but it's also partly about being prepared for climate change itself. Flooding yeah. is one of those things. You know, that one of the one of the, you know, there are all sorts of these shocks, which which actually in a moment like this you can. I think have more focus on if, if we if we agree that actually we should have been better planned for, for, for shocks in the heart of government.
1: Yeah, and it's almost this is a big. It's almost the argument for tying your hands. You know, as you say, the the CCC was set up originally to, to tie a government's hands. You know, in central banks and interest rate setting, I mean, there's a big there's a big uh, you know a big literature on the value in committing. Um, and and and, and you know, in terms of embedding this in, rather than responding on an ad hoc basis. So anyway, we won't go any further down down that. No, it will be a different different topic for another time. But it's fascinating. Um, could you talk a bit about? So so we talked about citizens' preferences, voters' preferences. When it comes to your role in the policy discussion, is it is it possible to have a serious? policy conversation at the moment with with politicians with bays with with other kind of critical decision makers or or does that have to wait until covid19 stabilizes whatever that means maybe it's maybe it's like the second lowest level on the prime minister's scale maybe it's the it's probably not the lowest level because that means there's no covid um is it possible to have these discussions you know you know you spending your time getting ready to have those discussions or are you having those discussions now
2: well, I, it's, it, I mean, clearly the focus of government has moved on to the, the the immediate priority of dealing with what is a health crisis, and that, that is entirely understandable. Um, but I have to say, I'm not finding it difficult to have uh, pretty in-depth and lengthy discussions with government when they want it. Um, so there is there's a there's a large group of people I know in government planning for the next stage of this, which is the recovery. And and I'm very pleased to say, are planning very actively. I think to, to to for 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 that goal of net zero emissions, to to be one of the lenses through which they you know they make their priority decisions uh, for the recovery. Now that that's fantastic. I mean, we would never be in that position in the last recession, for example. When there was talk of a, you know, a green stimulus, for example, in 2009. But we're actually ready for it this time. So, you know, the idea that you might actually prioritize the government's actions by thinking at least partly about how you reduce emissions is is, is a total shift. No. Is it possible to have, you know, we are not having the kind of day-to-day business-as-usual discussions uh, that we, were to, we would have had with government before. And yes, it's definitely true to say that large parts of government have been moved off policies that, you might call climate policies, onto other things, but that will change in the future. So, I, 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 I mean, I am an optimist, but I do think in a moment of crisis like this, I haven't seen the government drop this agenda in the way that I suspect they would have in previous years.
1: Okay, So that's shifted, positive from my perspective. Shifted out a bit, potentially. And, and we will pick this up. I want to talk about yeah. green stimulus, um, and obviously the flip side of that, which is um, you know, we're borrowing a lot of money at the moment. and We'll probably have less of it when we when we come out of this. Yeah. But we'll pick that up and say, just on the, on, there, there are some real like practicalities I'm seeing in the UK at the moment. And, you know, we can't all meet in person. And a couple that spring to mind, Glasgow Cop, you know, it's been pushed back, or, or maybe maybe it'll never happen. We you know we we'll wait wait and see what that looks like. It's a bit like the Tokyo Tokyo Olympics. Your climate <laughs> your your climate assemblies were obviously. I don't know if they all completed or, or whether there was an ongoing program, but that's probably one that was close to your heart. Where, where if, if if that's still happening, there's a, there's a change. On those two examples, how how is the logistical challenge having having an impact? Apart so from obviously under. they've been cancelled.
2: So I think the COP is definitely the more important of those two things. Let me just deal with the Climate Assembly. So so one of of the really interesting things that happened last year was uh, after the Parliament, the Westminster Parliament, uh, set the goal to reset the goal in our advice to a net zero goal by 2050. um, Fascinating. Everyone understood the You know, the implications of that target would be substantial. And interestingly, it was Parliament itself said, actually, we don't know enough about the public preference for the steps that would lead to net zero. So six uh, select committees in the House of Commons um, decided to get together and to start this process of uh, a Citizens' Assembly on climate uh, change and on the net zero target. So, actually, we've we we are not directly involved in that except to be what they call um, one of the expert uh, leads, one of the advisors on it. So, we've been we've been part of putting together the the um the um the syllabus for the participants in that, and it's been fascinating to watch it. So, what so the process on the climate assembly was that this kind of Willy Wonka style, um, uh, 30,000 tickets went out to um uh, random addresses on the electoral roll. And from and, that, and, and
1: were, you um, Willy, were you Willy Wonka in this? I, I, in this I am not Willy
2: Wonka. I think I, think okay. I might be a Loompa. Who uh, Who so is? Uh, okay, <laughs> I won't ask you, who Willy Willy Wonka <laughs> uh, is then. Okay. So the Willy Wonka. I suppose the, the Willy Wonker suppose is Parliament itself. So uh, And okay. I have a nice image in my mind at the moment. But anyway, from that they selected um, just over hundred uh, real people. And they've been going through this process. Now it will conclude, actually, as we're talking today, it will conclude the next weekend, so um, in, in the middle of May.
1: Oh, it's and, been Zoom based um, then.
2: Yeah, it's moved totally to Zoom, and um, I have to say the quality of the discussion because I'm still I, I take part in it, and I'll, I'm leading the discussion this weekend on the impacts of the coronavirus, for example. Uh, so we've been able to kind of uh, adapt the program of uh, uh, topics that they're, they're covering in the assembly to reflect the current priorities and um, zoom works much better frankly uh in many ways as a as a as a medium uh so it's been pretty interesting to do that what you miss of course is the human interactions that happen outside of the formal um discussions but that it's a it's an intro. i would never have suggested something as complicated as that could be moved to video conferencing and yet yeah, it works very well um mm. that's one thing so i mean that'll be an interesting thing which um I'm as interested in the results of that as anyone else, actually. But that'll be the, really the first time that there's been a structured approach to gathering evidence from uh, real people, representative group of people about whether and how you get to net zero in the UK and where the public support for the measures that will be necessary actually lies. It's fascinating. Uh, so that's one thing, and we'll see that later this year. The COP uh, is a totally different thing. And I, if you'd, if you'd asked me at the start of the year, Uh, you know, what what does the year ahead look like? Well, it would have ended with the COP in my hometown in Glasgow. Um, And everything that CCC was doing this year was framed up around the need to, uh, for the UK to be a strong president of the next climate summit. Um, Well, the COP's been kicked into next year. I do think it will happen. Uh, We won't know till June when it's going to happen but it should still be in Glasgow. It'll either be probably the summer or, or, or possibly the autumn. It could even just be in the same slot in November next year. Yeah. But that still frames up uh, what lies ahead this year, because, and in many ways, it's more important actually. So you've got next year, not only is it a big summit for climate change, it's also post US presidential election. So we should have cleared up the question of whether Donald Trump is there. Um, uh, It is also a massive moment for global cooperation generally and uh, the UK is in the presidency of it and the UK is also in the presidency of the G7. So it's a huge moment generally for for the the UK as a a global leader on those questions of global diplomacy and climate just happens to be one of the major focuses of of that year. So if you connect that up, the domestic ambition on climate change. Is your license to be influential in the presidency of those of those uh, you know those big big summits yeah. next year, and I I'm I'm really keen on that. You know that seems to me is what's keeping everyone honest at the moment. Yeah. Um, so in uh, a sense, potentially better year. timing. Oh, it's much better timing. Definitely. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's really really much better. It was always going to be tricky, I think, for the UK to pull off the presidency of the COP um, in November because they had quite a they had they had a shorter than usual run in for yeah. the for the for the summit itself and the trump thing really the uncertainty of that hung over it so in the original uh, date for the cop uh, it would have been just days after the u.s presidential election you still would have had a trump administration now, we I, I don't know whether it'll be trump but i do know at least you'll be able to plan with certainty for whoever is u.s president
1: yeah um, and of course so that were, were it biden you know he was the he was the vice president when obama's green stimulus you know in that sense i think when people talk about green stimulus now they, they look at what the u.s did some of it seemed to be effective, some of it was, was clearly ineffective um but yeah he clearly has a, a track track record there so it would yeah and
2: you know, bernie sanders made it a big part of his campaign you know bernie sanders has dropped out of the race of course but yeah uh, you know the, the the supporters of Sanders, if they're to be brought round to a Joe Biden presidency, yeah, okay, um, will want to see some kind of reference to to, to green jobs in this. So, I mean, that, there's there's definitely a sort of wedge issue there in the U.S. presidential election. I, I genuinely don't know how the U.S. presidential race will pan out. Yeah, uh, but I do know it's better to hold a summit on climate change, knowing the outcome.
1: Yeah, with um, clarity.
2: So, with clarity,
1: yeah, yeah. What, what? Just one thing on these citizens assemblies, the climate assemblies. Yeah. If you were to say in, in one word, why do people care about climate change? What What would it be? <laughs> uh, I should know the answer to this, right? But but uh, but I haven't been to a climate assembly, so to no know. <laughs> well, I so I'm going to I'm going to disagree,
2: as I often do, with the premise of your question, if I might, John. So so I don't think that people do care about climate change uh, in, in 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 every walk of life and yeah. nor should they would be my other kind of take on this which might be a more interesting controversial thing to say i think one of the one of the flaws in people who work on climate change and on climate action is to believe that somehow the problem is that not enough people know about climate change or not enough people are motivated by climate change itself i don't think that's true i think one of the problems is that actually the things that we need to do to get emissions down to the scientific goal of net zero globally are very fundamental things to the way that we live our life in the modern world. So some of that we will do because we are motivated to do something about the climate, but some of it will need to be for a different set of motivations. So in this discussion, I'm sure we will talk about energy, but the things that get energy emissions down are partly climate motivation, but they're also things like energy demand, um, energy being cheaper. And actually, we need to focus more on the underlying drivers for what cuts emissions emissions, Uh, And not just the kind of overall goal of addressing climate change. So one of the interesting things with the Climate Assembly is that you're sitting with a group of people who have very different motivations. Some of them are very sceptical about doing anything at all about climate change. Um, But we're putting to them the, the goal, which Parliament has set. It's a statutory target. It has to be met. It's a piece of legislation. And we're asking those people who come from a very kind of broad spectrum, what what do you think we should do about this? You have to meet the target. So where's your support for the steps that will be necessary to get there? And you're going to get, I think, I mean, I I haven't had a sneak preview of the results of it yet, but you will get a very big spread of views about what's acceptable and, and, you know, what we need to do about some of those big, difficult measures. And that's what's so interesting about it. All of that then goes straight back to the select committees in Parliament and then they will use that as a tool of inquisition over the government and what they're doing about these things. That's the really powerful thing about it. You know, So it's parliament themselves who have who've asked for this process.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and the data that comes for it should be really valuable.
1: Great. We're looking forward to, to seeing that. Now, could I, could I, we touched on this earlier. We, we I've sort of tried to keep us focusing on the here and the now. But looking a little bit further ahead, I increasingly see, rightly or wrongly, people drawing parallels between... Covid and and climate change, in the sense, you know, snuck Covid. I think, you know, exponential growth. It, it's not another of those, you know, behavioural human, human things we're not always good at. It sort of snuck up on us. Do you see Do you see parallels between the two and things that we can we can learn and, and implement from one to the other? We talked about the speed of response, I, I suppose, before. But do you think it's a fair parallel to draw or in what respect?
2: Well I think there are some parallels I, I I'm very cautious about making too much of this link though because i mean I think you, you, there is a, there is an argument that that you know this the, the the way in which this virus came to be such a threat to um uh, to to populations around the world is 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 itself symptomatic of climate change in the way we've been treating the air. I'm not that taken with that. What I am taken with is that that's like people, people are flying
1: around and and that's uh, and seeing yeah, nature.
2: and you know it's, we're kind of abusing nature. You know that sort of uh, kind it. of misusing resources. Exactly. I mean there is a link, and I, I'd like to see the evidence that makes that that makes that more compelling. Um, I'm much much more taken though with with, the, with the, the story that it's telling us about how unprepared we are generally for, for these kind of shocking moments as they come along. And the question of preparedness is one that we in the, in the CCC and the Committee on Climate Change think a lot about. And it is absolutely the case that we are just not prepared for climate change in this country, and we're not prepared for net zero either. So I, I think the, big, the strongest lessons are really about you know, what we can take from a, a moment of crisis like this that leads to better planning especially in government it's not just in government i mean in in, in, in industry too and um, I, I do think that's where the strongest parallels lie actually that that we could we can use this as a moment to just just step back a bit and get get better prep for the future
1: could, could you give one example of what that might look like I mean you know is it flood defenses or or or, or is it yeah or or is it is it just you know mitigating emissions what, what might what might a sort of an outcome of COVID, where we say, right, we need to plan better. We need to we need to commit um, in the context of climate change. Look like
2: well, this, so you've raised you've raised a couple of them already, actually. But the um, but the the, the the climate risks themselves um, are, are actually pretty serious for the UK, and they're not being taken seriously by uh, by policymakers. So flooding would be one of them. Overheating would be another. Coastal change coastal erosion would be another. The interesting thing about these things is that we have we have really strong sense of um, of how things will change in the future uh, and we have all of, all the information that we need to plan properly for it and yet we don't. Uh, the other interesting one is is overheating. Um, you know we already have a you know a housing stock particularly in England that overheats every summer and we know those summers will get hotter in the future that's a fundamental problem of the way that buildings are designed and you know we've got another building design problem when it comes to emissions so there's all sorts of these problems just kicking about they're not really they're not really new but going back to your earlier point about human psychology we we we, we, we're, we're quite good at parking them because they're not an immediate threat so it's really only government that can make good provision for that and the biggest one of all of course is the need to plan for an orderly transition to a world without um, uh, lots of fossil fuel use and, and net zero as the as the, as the ultimate outcome. And on and that, I'm much more optimistic that the government has its ducks in a row, but we're not not seeing nearly, nearly the level of ambition that we would need to in policy terms to get there yet. So the, 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 the most troubling thing, I suppose, is that we have, we have interrupted, COVID has interrupted a momentum towards there being a much better package of uh, policies and proposals from government to get on track for net zero, and that, that momentum needs to return. But I do think there's a general thing about how well prepared we are for, for, these, um, for these risks, g- given that they are entirely predictable, um, and, and, and you know we are seeing the benefits of those, those countries that are well planned for these events. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll come out a bit better.
1: Yeah, and it's int- the the country planning point I find really interesting. You know, Switzerland notoriously well planned, and Germany's got the testing and the ICU beds. The others, you know, whether you're, you agree with it or not, and I'm not forming a view on that. You know, this what what has surprised me probably most in terms of government planning here is the Swedish government, where they seem to have been able to. D- despite public concern tie the hands of politicians into saying yeah. well we need to trust the bureaucrats in this in this circumstance and we can't do anything about it and they're telling us to do this and it, it, I, to me that was the, the strongest example of actually committing in advance to a course of action but before the crisis whether it's right or wrong time will tell and we may never well
2: know. yeah and i think it I speaks it to the importance of I mean, every year, every day, rather, we hear about the, you know, how we're being led by the science, as though the science is, uh, you know, a single voice. Uh, no. and, you know, it's really not. So, but but it's very very important that that scientific outlook is, uh, you know, is at the heart of the planning process in government, and and yeah. climate is another area where that would really help. Um, So, you know, I I, I do feel we were making big progress actually in establishing that there was a scientific imperative here to do something about emissions and an economic one. Um, And the government was in the midst of framing up a whole package of, of, of policies and, and a program to respond to that you could see that obviously and even the Tory manifesto made be referenced to, the, to net zero as a goal it's just something that I would never have imagined even just a few years ago so that I do hope that momentum returns and at the heart of it I hope there's this idea that we do need to be more you know scientific literate about these big risks that, that we face and, um, and and get plans in place that address them properly
1: yeah yeah we haven't talked you know the experts are having a bit of a moment in the sun it looks like at the moment um okay great just one other thing on the long-term impact you talked briefly at the start about certain things not popping back you know we we um maybe we use bicycles more in terms of emissions intensive activities which are the ones that you think hey maybe people have seen a different way or maybe they'll never return to to where they were
2: So there's a whole, I I think it's maybe worth just introducing, I've been using this uh, recently, talking about the short, the medium and the long term. The the long term, going through them in reverse, long term nothing has changed really. So the, the, the steps to get to net zero are still the steps that we need to take and the scientific need to do it has been almost entirely unchanged by the drop in emissions. And um, there's some sort of security in that, actually. You can, have, you, you can fall back on those long-term priorities because they're things that we need to do, they're things that every other country needs to do, or we will have a, you know, a much bigger problem of, of climate change itself during in the future. Um, the medium term is the most interesting. I think that's where you've got the biggest uncertainties. So this, we were talking earlier about behaviour changes and, and what might stick. And There's a whole host of things that will influence that. So at the moment, we've got really low oil prices you know, that might be an enduring thing, strong argument that it, it won't be, but, but if it is, what will that do to medium-term uh, motivations? Um, Behaviour shifts that we've seen, the kind of normalising of remote working, uh, even uh, things that for years were seemed impossible, remote medical consultations, so we've managed, managed, to, managed to turn that around overnight. You know, that's now the kind of, that's established norm for how you do a medical consultation now. That will have an impact on transport use. I suspect the enduring need for social distancing will also create a new set of norms, some of which will be less happy. Uh, we won't be flying so much um, and we won't be using public transport so much. So, you know, that, that, might, that might, you know, cause a different set of motivations over the medium term. These are all things, you know, the availability of capital is another thing that I think you might question over the medium term. These will have an impact. It's enormously difficult to predict how that will play out. And the other big one, just while I'm on my list of medium term issues is is industry change and employment with it we are going to see a rapid acceleration of some of the shifts that were happening anyway in, in the industry composition that we have in the uk economy and the global economy and um, some of that is going to be far less well managed than it might have been if we hadn't had covid it's going to accelerate some of the transition uh, either towards or away from net zero and we need to we need to understand that too so so th- there's the whole host of things in the medium term that are really uncertain but will have a massive impact on the job that I do and the job of the of the government in getting us on track for net zero. The short term is the, the stuff actually where we can be probably clearest about what the priorities are. So, um, well, I won't go through the list, but there's a, there's a, there's a pretty well established list of things that make sense in the short term to get the economy going and also to uh, to cut emissions. So you know that's all that's almost the easiest bit of the uh, of the of the of the story.
1: Right, and I'd like to go a little bit beyond COVID nineteen, but just one more one more point on this. We've talked about green stimulus. You've talked about the impetus within government for for uh, for, for getting things moving again, and that, and that actually there's a lot to like about greater investment in low carbon power generation industry, those types of things. How about the the, the consequences of tighter budgets? So we've seen the furloughing scheme. Which is eye-wateringly expensive to the exchequer, being extended today at, at substantial cost. We, you know, it's just a, it's a natural consequence of being idle. We're producing less things; GDP will be lower. We'll have less money. How do you see that interacting with the desire for green stimulus? Is it impe- is it an impediment or is it an impediment further down the down the track? Will taxes go up? No, what are what are the implications?
2: So it might be an impediment, and there's no sense denying that. So the, the fact that consumer incomes are lower, the fact that we have less um, available, frankly, that, that consumers will be less able to make some of the investments that we might have hoped they would have made on the on the way to net zero, is going to make it more tricky. But I'm not sure that that rule applies so easily to government. So I think potentially that this is actually a very, very important moment of unfreezing, if you like, of some of the you know the kind of previously impossible policies. Will now really come into the frame, and you mentioned tax. Tax would be one of those things we're going to have to right the ship when it comes to the public finances coming out of that, coming out of this uh, crisis. Um, almost certainly, we will see tax rises in the future, and you know one of the ways in which we might seek to raise tax is by looking to um, carbon taxation, uh, especially when fossil fuel prices are low. So that idea that we use the tax system in a creative way coming out of this is 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 very kind of. Um, very topical at the moment. And I think that doesn't happen unless you plan for it well. We already knew we had a set of tax changes on the cards even when it came just to to climate policy, because if I'm right about the way in which we will make a transition to electric vehicles and low carbon transport, then the fuel taxes for transport don't look like a stable revenue source anymore for the chancellor. So Mm -hmm. there's a host of tax choices that need to be taken anyway. And the other interesting thing about it is that many of the things that we need to do to invest to get net zero as a country are fundamentally infrastructure choices. So we can look to kind of the infrastructure funding models for that, especially if the government is taking more of a share in that. look, Think about regulated asset bases, for example, which are quite a sensible way to get investment going quickly um, and, and to be repaid over the long term. And these things will, in the main, Cut the cost of energy if you do them right. So you know that that's a kind of that's a sensible step to take on any on any level. But I'm not going to mess. I'm not going to. I'm not going to mince my words. Some of this is going to be very difficult. So we 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 predicted last year that there is indeed a cost to getting to net zero. It's pretty small overall, and I have to say we used a pretty conservative basis for assessing that cost. But there is a cost there, so it has to be managed. So uh, you know, I'm I'm. I think one of the tests for the CCC this year is. Not just to promote the things that we were already promoting as a useful thing to do in the economic recovery, but also to think seriously about which, if any, of the costs that we've, um, that we've assessed need to be moved to the right. So how do we protect the consumers that can least afford it in the, in the recovery um, yeah. from, the, from the cost of those policies? That's got to change. And you know, we're going to have to think about all of that in the round. And that's why this year is such a, suddenly such an interesting year.
1: Yeah, interesting, and and refresh. I mean, not refreshing, but I think a really important point that, that there is a cost. It's not huge, and, and you know, ca- carbon emissions are not huge within the within within the context of the things that we spend money on in general. But I, but I think I, you know, in this country, in the past, I think people's confidence has been undermined by the idea that it's a, it's a it's a cost free transition. Uh, it's in
2: incredibly capital intensive you know the the, um, the, the the what lies before us is a massive investment issue for the whole country uh, i i've to say the cost of that to the consumer is remarkably low yep. if it's managed well uh, most of that will be, you know, be private investment. I suspect, and therefore, actually, some you know, that's a cost of capital issue. You know, it's a it's a question is whether the government can keep the risk low. Actually, is 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 how we will manage the costs overall. Uh, but that's not easy in a moment like this. So, so I, you know, I, I'm I am keen that we turn around the discussion of. Uh, the, the size of the investment challenge—that's a very useful thing, frankly. If you're thinking about recovering well from a from a crisis, an economic crisis, and you can think about what, what you can invest in as a means to get the economy going. And these are very sensible investments to make, uh, even if they weren't climate investments.
1: Many yeah. of them. Okay. Excellent. Good. So I'd like to move briefly beyond COVID, and I've got what I want to do is is I've got a series of concepts that I'm going to present to you, and I'd like you just to say one-word answer. Do you think they're overrated? As concepts, or underrated as concepts, or you—you or you could even say they're about rated about right. Okay, just to get get a sense of what what you think is important. So I'm just going to fire fire away. i Ideally, one word answers if if you can. Okay. Um, so the first concept is the role of the power sector now in decarbonization Is it overrated or underrated?
2: I think it's just about right. So we've okay. brought, we broadly got that right. I think we understand the scale of the channel, At least the sector does.
1: Yeah, okay, good. Um, negative emissions technologies, are they overrated or underrated?
2: We have hugely underrated their importance and indeed the need that we will have for them, I suspect. So we need to think about that right now.
1: Okay, interesting. Uh, so, so you're saying there's some carbon we just won't get out of the economy?
2: Aviation it definitely is. Like I mean, yeah. aviation. I mean, aviation is one of those things in the medium term that may change. But you're going to have aviation emissions. You're going to have you're going to have emissions enduring from agriculture. So you do need to think about what you, we used to call offsets. So what is the sustainable offset that we'll, that we will yeah. have in this net zero economy?
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Third concept: the the concept of needing to have many arrows in the quiver on decarbonisation. So, you know, why not just do the best thing? Why do we need many arrows in the quiver? Is, that, is it an overrated concept or an underrated concept?
2: It's, a, it's an underrated concept because it's so okay. important. So some of this will not work as well as we think. Some of it will work better than we think. We need to have options. And if we don't have options, I start to worry a lot about whether we will make the goal.
1: Okay, interesting. Okay, so it's, a, so it's a, we don't know what will work, so we need to try a bunch of things argument. Um, yeah rather than a diminishing marginal return arg- argument on any particular thing That's well, I think, you can, I think
2: i think there 's a way of combining those things actually. One of the reasons why we like things like carbon capture and storage so much in the ccc is because it gives you that optionality now that optionality means that some of the options will work really well, but you won 't know until you have the optionality in the first place so yeah. Uh, so thinking carefully about how you buy yourself that optionality is a really good thing, and that's what leads you to think that we should be giving more priority to things like carbon capture and storage.
1: Yeah, and obviously, as, as Black and tell us, options are worth more, the higher is the uncertainty. So uh, <laughs> get, get some cheap options is a good idea. Okay, good. So next concept, the need to move urgently on decarbonisation. Is that overrated or underrated?
2: It's, it's, it, is, uh, it is underrated. There is still, I'm afraid, a story that if we wait, the cost will fall. Yeah. Um, but actually, the, the, those, the, you, can't, you can't assume that's the case unless you act. So it, the story in the UK of how costs have fallen in the power sector is because of the UK's willingness to act. That's what, yeah. that's what brought about, those cost falls. That's not just a story that we'll see in power. We'll see it in all the other sectors too. So you need to act now to get the emissions down. And, and the longer you wait, the harder
1: it is. Mm-hmm. Next concept, good. Next concept. There's three more to go. Uh, The costs of deep decarbonisation are they overrated or underrated? I mean, you've touched on this a bit already. (laughs) Uh,
2: They're much smaller than we think.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, So we shouldn't worry so much. They're overrated in a sense. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh. Two more. The second, second last. The role of the private, the role of private sector decisions in decarbonising the economy overall. Uh, We.
2: Oh, we massively underrate this. I think we assume, and I, maybe the CCC is part of the problem here, but we we assume that all of this is 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 a problem for government. Yep. But actually, it's it's uh, the majority of the emissions funds will be delivered by the private sector. They just need the conditions to be in place to get
1: that right. Okay, great. And then, for a final, even further off piece, uh, asking you, know, someone who's worked in Whitehall and Holyrood uh, in the past, um, the so the, this concept is the usefulness of the devolved administrations during the covid crisis you know we had a conflict and moving in different different uh different lockstep and and things like that do you think the usefulness of devolved administrations during the covid crisis is overrated or underrated
2: i think that's an impossible question john (laughs) um, but um i i i think it is underrated how useful they can be as long as we have an integrated approach across the uk and i'll make a parallel to my current trade that is that is true of covid so we need to have a multiplicity of local approaches to a health crisis like covid and we have the capacity to do that with devolved administrations and the fact that we have devolved health systems you need that for climate too right so you need you need you need Properly integrated decisions across the whole economy, and and when it comes to my trade, many of the most important levers lie with devolved administrations, and even more locally than that, they're typically the things that that, you know your policies can affect demand. um, I think more effectively at the local level. So we need this to work properly, and we are really at the foothills of having a well, you know, well worked, uh, you know, sensible, well worked through devolved and national. Uh, administration system in this country it just it, it i i would struggle to say that it works well at the moment
1: yes okay well i'm i'm slightly biased as an australian focused on energy and i would say don't hold your breath because at federation <laughs> in 1901 when we stopped being a, a british colony you know, we 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 had this you know we've got the states and uh, I think one of the biggest reasons for inaction on climate and energy policy in Australia is the existence of the state. So it's a slightly leading question uh, based on based on 120 years of experience. But but I, I would just caution, don't hold your breath on climbing that mountain you described in quick order. Um, great. Excellent. So we'll stop there. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. It was, it was uh, hugely enjoyable from my perspective. And it's obvious you. You know this space as well as anyone and you're, you're hugely passionate about it. So so many thanks for, for joining us. Thanks, John.
0: That was John Feddersen, Aurora's co-founder and chief executive, talking to Chris Stark, CEO of the Committee on Climate Change. Thank you very much for listening and look out for other sessions to come in the Aurora COVID-19 series.